We're interrupting programmes to tell you that Diana, Princess of Wales, is gravely ill in intensive care in Paris's Salpetriere Hospital after being seriously injured in a car crash which killed her friend. The Mercedes saloon they were travelling in was no more than crumpled metal. It had careered from one side of the other. I just to got the off to sleep when the phone went just after uh, one-ish in the morning when it was my duty officer at Buckingham Palace to tell me that Dodie was dead and Diana was dying. French police said the couple were apparently being pursued by paparazzi on motorbikes when the crash happened. The phone rang at about 1.15. It was a reporter. He told me that there'd been a crash in Paris. He asked me if I had any comment. We are now being told that Diana, Princess of Wales, who was reported to be injured in that accident you've just seen pictured of, has actually died in Paris's Salpetriere Hospital. They pronounced her dead at 4 a.m. Paris time from cardiac arrest and a severed pulmonary artery. He said, uh, is, is the old man there, which they, they call me, and he said, turn the television on and listen to me. A French minister has confirmed the death of the Princess of Wales after a car crash which also killed her friend, Haridzeh, Dodie fired. You know, I must say I was uh, really shocked and uh, couldn't get my mind around it like most other people, I think. I'm Stephen Wright, and you're listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt series from Mail Plus. Episode 1, The Crash. We all remember where we were on the night Diana, Princess of Wales, died. For those of us of a certain age, it was one of those seminal moments that stays with us for life. Was it really 24 years ago that she died aged just 36? How could someone so young, so beautiful, perish in a car crash? Why do so many people still think she was killed in a major conspiracy? Over the coming weeks, as Diana's family marked what would have been her 60th birthday, I'm going to investigate Diana's death with dramatic new testimony from key figures in the case, including police chiefs, medical staff, pathologists, her ex-staff, and close friends. This groundbreaking exclusive series will give the inside story on Operation Paget, Scotland Yard's unprecedented and highly sensitive inquiry into her crash. In the first episode, we're going to look closely at the events of that night in late August 1997. But to fully understand what happened in Paris, and the events that followed, it's important to have some context first. In the summer of 97, Diana was arguably the most talked about woman in the world. Her photo was on the front of every newspaper and her various summer holidays were the subject of constant media attention. Diana had gone through a high profile divorce from Prince Charles the summer before. She had lost her Royal Highness title, but as the mother of the future king, she continued to live in Kensington Palace and receive a degree of protection from the Metropolitan Police. Her divorce only heightened the public's interest in her life. 
the bombshell interview with Martin Bashir for the BBC in which she claimed there had been three people in her marriage to Prince Charles scandalised the nation and left people hungry for more gossip about her love life. Just weeks after her controversial holiday with the Al Fayyad family, which was widely discussed in the tabloids, it's emerged that Princess Diana has enjoyed a second holiday, this time with Mohammed Al Fayyad's son. We'll go into more detail on the press interest in Diana in a later episode, but for now, it's enough to understand that that summer, Diana's every move was being watched by the paparazzi, and readers were eager for more information on her new love interest, Dodie Fired, also known as Dodie Al Fired. Her decision to join him here in Saint-Tropez to enjoy the use of his yacht has again allowed her critics to question the princess's judgment. When Diana was in London, she had her own protection, independent of the Met's royalty protection squad. Her security was headed by her driver, come minder, former Scotland Yard royal bodyguard, Colin Tebbit. Colin, can you talk me through when you last saw her? Because I believe you did actually take her to the heliport in South London, didn't you? Before she went on that last holiday. The day that she was leaving to go on the uh, holiday with Mr L. Fyatt, it was decided to go from Battersea Heliport, which is a fairly easy rundown, but when you've got four gates with press at each gate and that the following was very high, you, you're going to have a problem if you want to do it privately. So nobody knew where we were going. And, and I worked out that uh, if we were going to get out of here, we got to do a little bit of work. So I used uh, an old Volvo, an indescribable-looking car where anybody can drive on the streets, so I sent two cars out. I sent her car out and another car out by different gates. And uh, after a short while, the, the boss came down, sat in the back. I covered her over with a blanket. And uh, I drove out past the Israeli embassy. I, I drove out of that gate. Nobody there. I could jig about in the back streets to get down to um, Battersea. I drove in. Uh, we identified ourselves. And uh, I said to the princess, she could get out. Mr. Alfired came over to speak, just said hello and they both then went to the helicopter with me saying to the boss, take care, Mom, stay safe, see you soon. You never spoke to her again? Uh, well, I did in prayer, but that's only, uh, only at a later date in the week, as you know. On the 21st of August, Diana and Dodie left London for the south of France. They spent nine days together on board Dodie's yacht, the Yonkel on the French and Italian Rivieras. On Saturday, the 30th of August, they flew back to Paris intending to spend a night at the Ritz Hotel, owned by Dodie's father, before heading back to London. Just after midnight on that Saturday night in August 1997, Diana and Dodie left the Ritz Hotel, heading for a private apartment owned by the Alfayeds a short drive away. Their car was driven by the deputy head of security for the Ritz, Henri Paul, and they were accompanied by one of Dodie's security team, Trevor Reese jones Two decoy cars left from the front of the Ritz as the couple prepared to depart from the hotel's rear entrance in a hired Mercedes but the paparazzi spotted their car and pursued them. 
Account suggested that the driver, Henri Paul, accelerated in an attempt to shake off the paparazzi who were pursuing them on motorbikes. He may also have made a last-minute decision to change their route. As the car entered the Alma Tunnel, Henri Paul lost control. It hit the 13th pillar in the tunnel at more than 60 miles an hour. Neither Diana nor Dodie were wearing seatbelts. Henri Paul and Dodie died instantly. Rhys Jones suffered severe injuries, but Diana, seemingly protected by Rhys Jones in the seat in front, appeared to have escaped with only minor injuries. Unconfirmed reports suggest he has concussion, severe cuts and broken bones. The Foreign Secretary, Robin Cook, has delayed his departure from... Dr. Frederick Maillet was working as an emergency medicine doctor in Paris in the 90s. He was one of the first people to get to the crash after it happened. I was coming back from a, from a birthday party in the west suburb of Paris and I was driving with my husband Mark back home and I went close to the Tunnel de l'Alma, Alma Tunnel, and I saw some smoke inside the tunnel. There was this Mercedes who was on the other side of the tunnel, and uh, obviously the accident just happened. And there was uh, some smoke coming out of the engine, and the horn was still going on, and there was nobody around the wreckage. You stopped, got out of your car and approached the crash. What could you see as you got closer? Obviously, the accident was a very high-energy one. The, the engine was almost cut in two parts and, and, and the, the front of the car was severely damaged. So I walked towards this uh, Mercedes and... I discovered inside the car four victims. Two were already apparently dead and two were severely injured but still alive. So I did a very quick assessment um, and I went back to my car to get a little um, medical equipment I had, a respiratory bag, and I went inside the Mercedes and I tried to give assistance to the young woman who was the most severely injured. At that stage, you didn't know who she was, did you? How would you describe her appearance and her injuries when you first saw her? She wasn't on the seat anymore. She was on the floor of the car. Uh, she was facing the left door and I opened the right door, so I saw first her back, but I discovered a beautiful woman and she didn't have any injuries in her face and she wasn't bleeding, she was almost unconscious, but she had difficulty breathing, so my goal was to uh, help her to breathe more easily. And who else was there around the car in those first few minutes? Were there photographers close by taking photos? I was inside the car, on my knees, on the seat, on the back seat, giving assistance to this young lady. And 
I realized that little by little, more and more people uh, surrounded the car. And I discovered that a uh, lot of people took pictures with flash. I realized there was a lot of flash uh, around me. What did you make of that at that moment? Obviously, your first priority was treating this woman whose identity you didn't know. But did it cross your mind that she might have been someone famous? Because why else would people be taking photos? You know, it's not the first time I treat patients in an accident. Very often, there are people taking a few pictures because they are curious or whatever. But that time, there was a lot of people taking a lot of pictures. That was quite surprising for me. Did you find that quite an ugly situation? Because there were two people already dead in that car and you were trying to save the lives of the others. I was focused on the medical situation. These people around the wreckage never hampered me doing my job. They took pictures, but I, they didn't block me on my way to the wreckage. They didn't ask me to move this young lady's head to have better pictures. They never asked me anything. Uh, so I don't have any critiques against these people. So you were focusing on the woman, Diana. Where were the other passengers in the car? On the back seat, there, there was this man with multiple fracture and he was obviously dead, or at least uh, with a cardiac arrest, he didn't react, he didn't breathe. And the driver was also apparently dead, but uh, underneath the wheel, I, I could hardly see all his body. Uh, the guy on the front right seat was alive, he was screaming in pain, but he was still alive, so he could wait it was not the first emergency. And you said she was unconscious, but were you talking to her? And if so, what were you saying? I used to talk to my patient, even if they are unconscious, because you never know what they can hear or not. Uh, so I spoke to her. As a matter of fact, someone behind me told me that the patient spoke English. So I began to speak English to her and saying that I was a doctor, that the ambulances were on the way and that everything were going to be all right. You know, that's the kind of thing you try to say to, to make the patient a little bit more comfortable. And did her condition improve at any point while you were treating her? While I was helping her to breathe with my respiratory bag, uh, she improved a little bit, she reacted a little bit more and she was still unconscious but she was a little bit more alert. At no point she regained any consciousness and she didn't talk to me. She tried to say few sounds or few words but I couldn't understand what she, she would say. How long were you on your own, Dr. Maillet, treating her before the ambulances arrived? The time looked very long 
to me because it's a pretty uncomfortable situation to be an emergency physician with no equipment and by myself with these two, four victims. But as a matter of fact, uh, they arrived within a few minutes. It, that was really quick when they arrived. And at that stage, as you left the scene, you still had no idea who this lady was or if she would live or die. That's correct. After Dr Maillet left, Diana continued to receive treatment at the scene before being put in an ambulance and taken to the Salpatriere Hospital at around 1.40. Back in the UK, Diana's driver, Colin Tebbit, was woken in the middle of the night by a phone call. He said, uh, is, is the old man there, which they, they call me? And I said, yep. And he said, turn the television on and listen to me. And the person talking to me on the phone from Balmoral was telling me she had injuries. We thought then, a bang on the head and a broken arm. That was what they were thinking at the time. I said, OK, thanks very much. Put the phone down. Phone went from the private secretary. Can you come down to the office? To which I did straight away. As the then head of royalty protection in the Met, Di Davies also got a call. I'd been to one of my colleagues' 50th party and I'd just got off to sleep when the phone went just after uh, one-ish in the morning when it was my duty officer at Buckingham Palace to tell me that Dodie was dead and Diana was dying. And can you remember on a human level your reaction to that? Uh, tragic, really, but then I switch into, by then, nearly 30 years of police experience so my mind just flicked into what needed to be done immediately, who needed to know, what immediate action needed to be done. We needed to know where was she, what are the circumstances, how had it happened, all of these things. Who was held? Was there other people in the accident? Was it just them? What about the bodyguards? Has anybody told Prince Charles how the Queen? You know, all these things were going through my head. Richard Kay was the Daily Mail's royal correspondent back in the late 1990s and knew Diana well. In fact, he was one of the last people to speak to her on the night of the crash. But I'll ask him about that in a future episode. Richard, where were you when you first heard the news? Our then chief reporter, a man we both know well, David Williams, came to my home and sort of hammered on the windows and doors until I was roused from my slumbers. And so he was able to tell me in the early hours of the morning that there had been this very serious accident in Paris and, you know, we, we then watched developments together for a, a half an hour, an hour, I guess. It then obviously became a very frantic, fast-moving story and, I, I, you know, I had to park the fact that I was a friend of the princess and become the royal correspondent of the Daily Mail again. Richard wasn't the only journalist who had got wind of the accident. In fact, it was a reporter from the now-defunct News of the World who first told Michael Cole, the chief press officer for Harrods and its owner, Mohammed Al-Fayed, that his boss's son, Dodi, was dead. I was shocked by what Clive Goodman of the News of the World told me, but I was not inclined to show him my shock because Goodman was working for one of the newspapers which had been most ruthless in their pursuit of Diana and Dodie throughout that summer. I put the phone down and I rang Mohammed Al-Fayed at his house in Surrey. He picked up the phone. He was already talking on the phone 
to his helicopter captain arranging for the helicopter to come and pick him up to fly to Paris. I told Mohammed what I'd just learned and it was quite clear that he already knew. I expressed my concerns and sympathy and he said, Michael, let us hope it is not true. Let us hope it's not true. Let us pray. Diana was taken from the scene of the crash to the Salpetriere Hospital in central Paris and arrived just after 2am. The journey took just over half an hour. Dr Monsef Darman was the surgeon on call in the hospital's A&E department that night. He's never spoken to the British media about his experience, but he's agreed to talk to me for this series. His words have been translated and are voiced by an actor. So when did you first hear that this patient, Diana, was coming to you? I was resting in the on-call room. I wasn't told it was Lady Diana, but that it was a serious accident involving a young woman. So you didn't know at first it was the princess. You just knew it was a young woman who had a really bad accident. Yes, and I found out afterwards when I arrived. So two minutes later, you get to the emergency room and she was already there. What was the scene like? (laughs) She was already there. When I arrived, my intern, who is below me, was already there. And my intern was in a corner because she was a little overwhelmed by the gravity of the moment. And what about your reaction to seeing this young lady who you didn't know yet was the princess? Very quickly, I was told it was her. So it only took a moment for things to be clear to me. Who was the first person in the hospital to examine her? Was that you? In the hospital, it was Professor Bruno Rioux, who is an excellent anaesthetist, probably one of the best in France, who received her and who quickly made me aware of the seriousness of the situation. And what did he tell you? He told me that she had had several cardiorespiratory arrests before arriving and that currently she had very serious internal bleeding. Patient confidentiality means Dr. Darman can't go into every detail about what he did there in the emergency room to try to save Diana. But he did tell me that once they began operating, they realised Diana's injuries were far more serious than they'd first believed. Professor Alain Pavi a highly skilled cardiac and thoracic surgeon, was called to assist them. And it was he who decided Diana should be moved to an operating theatre to try to fix a lesion. Here again, I will invoke medical secrecy. You tried for about an hour after surgery to get the heart going again. We fought hard. We tried a lot, really an awful lot. But frankly, when we are in those conditions, I don't have a clock or a watch in front of me. The only thing that is important for us is passion.
At 4am on the 31st of August 1997, Diana, Princess of Wales, was pronounced dead. Dr. Darman, who was it that pronounced her death? It was Professor Alain Pavie with the anaesthetist who was there, who after multiple attempts decided that she was beyond therapeutic resources and that unfortunately there was no more that could be done, that we did not have any options left. Diana, Princess of Wales, was one of the most famous women in the world and she died in front of you. You'd tried to save her, but it hadn't worked. Obviously, it's always sad when anyone loses their life, especially someone so young. But she was so well known and beloved. How did you feel knowing she was now gone? Great disappointment to see someone young to leave us. Also great fatigue because a lot, a lot of energy had spent trying to make sure that this situation did not happen. And so we were particularly shattered and tired. And once you left the operating theatre, did you see members of the press or paparazzi? Were they already there at the hospital? La Pitié-Salpêtrière is a public hospital. So unfortunately, after her death, things resumed, new emergencies came along. She was in the building where there were other hospital patients. We saw people disguising themselves, pushing hospital trolleys, trying to get information. So journalists and photographers were trying to impersonate patients or nurses to get in? Oui. Did you recognize them or was it the security people who chased them away? Oh no, that's not my job. The security people took care of it. It's not my job at all. But I was asked questions. If you want a little anecdote that I have never told before to this day. When we were treating her, I had my clogs, which were white clogs. And obviously, as I told you, when you are working, you don't pay much attention to anything else. We take care of the patient first, and that is that. I realized the next morning that my white clogs were stained. There was blood on them, obviously, because of my intervention in the emergency room. Well, someone offered to buy them from me. Someone approached you in a corridor of the hospital to ask to buy your blood-stained clogs, the shoes you had worn while trying to save Diana. Outside, because La Pitié-Salpêtrière is very, very large. There are six kilometres of walkways and paths. So I was going from one side to the other, and someone said to me, Ah, your clogs. I am interested. I want to buy them from you. I took this, of course, as a joke and with sadness. I cleaned them up very soon afterwards, which meant that that was the end of that story. Were they French or English? A French person. Whoever suggested that was a really sick person. Diana's death was a historic moment an event that has fascinated people and the media in the years since. But you were right at the centre of the action that night. How has it affected you? 
So here we enter the philosophy of life. It's a defining element. You can't escape that. The idea that you lose an important young person for whom you have cared marks you. When it's a princess and you follow her funeral along with billions of other people, that obviously marks you. It marks you all your life. So I try to be very discreet. By the way, I don't even know how you found me, but I don't talk much about it. People know that I am particularly discreet. Out of politeness, they don't ask me many questions. But of course, it's an unfortunate thing, something that marked me very, very much because of all that she represented. Because it is so terrible that this person, this beautiful person, had such a tragic end. At that point, in the middle of the night, very few people knew of the princess's death. Certainly, in England, the press was still reporting that she was injured. Michael Cole, the Harrods press secretary, decided to find out what had happened to Diana. I went downstairs and I rang the hotel, Ritz Hotel in Paris. I spoke to the duty manager who told me the events of that day and how they'd been pursued from the moment they arrived in Paris to their very death. And he gave me the numbers of the police and the hospital to which the princess had been taken. I rang the police, they gave me some basic information, and I rang the hospital, which said quite reasonably that they could only talk to members of the family. By strange chance, on the Friday before this happened, Princess Diana's stepmother, Rain Countess Spencer, had come into my office and told me she was going to Venice for the weekend. And so I rang Venice. Of course, it was getting to be the middle of the night. But after some delay, Rain came to the phone and I told her what had happened and I gave her the number of the hospital. I then waited and in a very quick time, Rain came back to me and told me that she'd spoken to the hospital and Princess Diana had not survived. How did you react when Rain Spencer said that? It felt as if it couldn't be true. It was so dreadful, however, appalling it was that Dodie had been killed. It was somehow so much worse that somebody so young, so beautiful, somebody in the prime of life could have been struck down so horribly uh, as she was. Did you feel like it was your responsibility to let the press know, given that you were Mr Al Fayed's chief spokesman? I decided that it was not my role, it was not my responsibility to tell the world what I knew to be the terrible truth that the princess was dead. That had to be done formally and officially, and it was the British ambassador to France, Sir Michael Jay, at a hastily arranged news conference at, I think, four o'clock Paris time, three o'clock in Britain. And our thoughts and our prayers are with 
her family and her friends. In Diana's private office in Kensington Palace, her staff were assembled and waiting for news. There was Mr Gibbons, Paul Burrell and myself, and we were watching the television. The Foreign Secretary was telling everybody that she'd had this accident, and um, Michael Gibbons then answered the phone, turned the television down and said, ladies and gentlemen, the princess is, is dead. We are now being told that Diana, Princess of Wales, who was reported to be injured in that accident you've just seen pictured of, has actually died in Paris's Salpetriere Hospital. And that was a shock, let me tell you. That, was, that wasn't easy to take. And that was her private secretary? Saying yeah, that. Michael Gibbons, yeah, lovely man. And imagine there was, what, what silence or tears or...? or... I, don't, I think the girls were, were really cut up, the, the two secretaries. I mean, I, yeah, it was dreadful. You know, it hit me home and then thought, then your mind's thinking. Have you ever been in this uh, position where you're looking after someone? She's not injured, she's dead. What the hell do I do now? I would imagine just taking one step back, that there was no contingency plan for an incident like this. Absolutely not. No. You, you, you know, OK, you say that every member of the royal family has a, a funeral plan. Maybe they did, but no, we didn't at the time. You think on your feet, I suppose that's the best way. So what did you do? First thing I did was decide to lock the house, lock her rooms, put everything in the safe, lock it down, lock the whole house and hand the keys to uh, Mr Gibbons. At the same moment... Then Head of Royalty Protection, Di Davies, was with his boss, Peter Clark in the Royalty Protection Squad headquarters opposite Buckingham Palace. All we knew was that she was in a hospital. She had been pronounced dead, that up to 13 doctors and, and nurses and surgeons had worked their best, that she'd been dealt with by the best Paris had on call that day, and so on and so forth. So we were, like everyone else, watching the updates on, on television. But as the princess was no longer receiving royalty protection, it fell to her private office to figure out how to get her home. She was ours. There was only six of us in that office. You know, this lady was ours now. Nothing to do with the palace, nothing to do with Prince of Wales. She was our boss and we looked after her. So Michael Gibbons said, Colin, would you uh, get yourself on that first plane to Paris? And I said, yes, sir, no problem. You've been listening to Last Days of Diana, a Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast series for Mail Plus, with me, Stephen Wright. Next time. They're expecting major generals, they're expecting high government officials, not a driver minder and a butler. Prince Charles arrived in a cortege at the Pitié Salpêtrière Hospital in central Paris in the British ambassador's car. I thought just for that second in my life that the princess was still alive. Not for the first time, floral tributes are the immediate symbol of a national outpouring of grief. The huge crowds, the in brackets hysteria hmm. that seemed to grip the country at that time was a factor which I couldn't have imagined. It's terrible, you feel so alone and grieved, you know, as if you've lost someone you know. You stand tall enough as a human being of unique qualities, not need to be seen as a saint. And I was clapping and everybody around me was clapping and showed what people thought. And to the most beautiful lady in the world who 
did an awful lot into altering this uh, family of ours. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider telling your friends. And if you'd like more on this and other stories, you can visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more, including previous Beyond Reasonable Doubt episodes.